0: Welcome back, Culture by Design listeners. It's Freddie, one of the producers of the podcast. In today's episode, we are concluding our Leading with Character and Competence series. This is the final episode in this series, and if you've been with us each week, thank you. This has been an impactful series spanning across topics, including integrity, humility, accountability, courage, learning, change, judgment, and finally today, we cover the fourth cornerstone of competence, vision. As Tim and Jr. will discuss in today's episode, vision is to see what does not exist, to see what others cannot see, and to see potential and possibility in yourself, in others, and in the organization. As always, links to this episode's show notes can be found at leaderfactor.com forward slash podcast. Enjoy today's episode on the fourth cornerstone of competence, vision.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Culture by Design. I'm Junior. I'm here with Dr. Tim Clark, and today we'll be discussing the fourth and final cornerstone of competence, vision. Tim, how are you?
2: Doing great. Really excited to talk about vision. What could be more exciting than that?
1: I know there's zero sarcasm in that, it's absolutely literal. I'm excited to talk about it today. And it is our eighth and final of the cornerstones of both character and competence. I'm a little bit sad that this series is ending, but thankful that we have another series that is beginning. We've got a lot of good stuff in the works, and this has been a very enjoyable set of episodes for me.
2: It has. I've learned a lot myself.
1: Yeah, it's had me thinking. And as some of our team has mentioned before, that's when we know they're good, at least relative to us and how we think about this. If you catch yourself thinking about these episodes a little bit later in the day, as I find myself doing, I think that uh, they're making a difference, at least for me. Okay, let's start with a quote today. Daniel Hudson Burnham, an American architect, make no little plans; They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans, aim high in hope and work. What do you think about that quote?
2: That's an amazing quote because a good vision, an aspirational vision, a powerful vision does stir your blood. It's got to be detached from reality and it's got to be out there a little bit. And then, and then it begins to create a power. And, and we're going to talk about that. So I love that quote
1: very on the nose, make no little plans. So today we're talking about vision, vision to see what does not exist, vision to see what others can't see, and vision to see the potential and possibility in yourself and others. So we're gonna spend the first little while talking about what vision is, who needs it, what it isn't. And then toward the back half of the episode, we're gonna get into some practical ways that we can improve or create our vision in the first place. So what is a vision? It's a seedling of reality. It's a it's a portrait of the future. What do you think vision is to you, Tim? It
2: is those things. It's a life-giving force. And, and I want to emphasize that and come back to that definition over and over again. It's a life-giving force. It taps mental and emotional and spiritual energy. It propels you forward. And we'll see as we go how that happens, kind of the mechanics of a vision, how it's able to do that. So I I like that one. It taps power and it's a
1: life-giving force. A couple episodes back, we were talking about urgency and that urgency can be a catalyst, but seldom a sustainer. It's different when it comes to vision because vision is both. It can be a catalyst. I've seen that in my own life and a sustainer. I see that every single day. It points to the future. So it's this unique thing that bridges those two things. It can get you going and keep you going. So, who needs vision? Everyone needs vision, of course. And again, maybe two, three episodes back, maybe it was even farther than that, we were talking about the difference between leadership and management. And as I was thinking about vision, I think that this is another key differentiator between leaders and managers. Managers seldom have vision in the way that we're going to describe it today. Leaders do. And I think that that's another point that we could emphasize and think about as we talk about the distinction between leadership and management.
2: And Junior, I want to make a key distinction here because I think great leaders have two kinds of vision for two different units of performance. They, they're able to create a vision for the individual. And they're able to create a vision for the organization. So think about that, right? So you you need a vision for yourself that propels you forward. That's a life-giving force for you individually. And then the organization needs one. And great leaders are able to help create, craft, communicate a vision at those two different levels. I think this is really, really important to think about, and and we may want to just stop and ask listeners to think about someone who has had a vision for you, perhaps even carried that vision, that aspiration, when you didn't have it for yourself. This is often what leaders do, is that they carry a vision for you even before you do. They can see your potential. They can see what you might be able to accomplish And so that's vision at an individual level. And uh, and then, of course, it's also their job to create a vision for the organization. Let let, let me make another point here. They don't do it by themselves, right? They they do envision the future for an organization, but it's not something they do all by themselves. They make it a co-creative process. They enlist others in that process. And Here's an interesting point also. The very process of participating in vision creation, of creating that vision together, that is a life-giving force too. It's not just the finished product. It's not just the portrait of the future, that ceiling of reality that we put put out in front of us, but the actual process of creating it or co-creating it together, that's a life-giving force in and of itself. So I wanted to make that point because for those of you who have participated in that process of creating a vision, you'll you'll understand what I'm talking about, right? Just doing that, just participating in that process is a very inspirational and aspirational activity.
1: Well, I appreciate that you've spent some time on that distinction. I've never thought about it that way before. Last episode, we were talking about the power of differentiation and specificity. And I think breaking vision down into those two categories makes a lot of sense. Personal, organizational, the most effective leaders can do both. I would say that leaders, a level down, could do one or the other. Sometimes they're good at the personal and poor at the organizational or vice versa. But being able to do both of those is key. I think about my own life and you mentioned, has anyone ever had a vision for you and maybe carried that when you didn't have it for yourself? There's a critical nature to vision that I think is interesting to think about because vision is forward-looking, it's aspirational. And so, it by definition must be somewhat critical of today. And so, when other people have given me even more vision, there's this element of, of critique that I respect you and I respect where you are, but you could be so much more. And I think that we can do that for ourselves and for other people and for organizations. Respect where the organization is today, but it could be so much more. And I think that aspirational nature of vision is, is what's so compelling because we can paint that portrait of the future and then go embody it. We can reverse engineer all the way down to very practical things that we can do to accomplish that vision. And so, yeah, I I agree with what you're saying.
2: Well, Junior, think about it. What if you're a frontline supervisor and you really don't have any formal responsibility for the strategic vision of the organization, maybe even the vision of the department or the functional area or the geography or the line of business, wherever you are, but you run a team, you're a frontline supervisor. So what is your role when it comes to vision? It's not organizational necessarily, although there may be opportunities to contribute to it here and there. But the majority of your role is to have a vision for each one of the members of your team. You have to be able to see them and then see the gap between where they are and their potential. So you are engaging in vision, but it's the first kind. It's at the individual level. The individual is the unit of performance. You have to be able to see the members of your team. You you have to see them beyond where they see themselves. And and as you said, Junior, you can carry that vision until they can finally see it themselves. One of the pieces of
1: that that you have me thinking about is that The vision for the person is something that is co-created. You mentioned co-creation before, and it's not done in isolation by the leader who then shows up and says, this is my vision for you. That's not going to work. right? It's something that is co-created because there has to be buy-in at the level of the individual. And we've talked before about the five functions of leadership. One of them is talent acquisition and development. And I tended for a long time and maybe still tend that way to focus on the first half and a little bit less on the second half, talent acquisition, but where's the development? And vision is a big piece of that in co-creating that with people and then helping them along to embody that vision. So there are a couple other elements that we wanna touch on here. One is the relationship between vision and confidence. And this is something that I've seen pretty recently in in myself vision and confidence vision allows us or at least provides a greater degree of confidence because we can know whether or not we're moving in the right direction and i think that's so much of what breeds confidence if there isn't good direction it's very difficult to have a lot of confidence what do you say to that
2: no i think that's true and sometimes it's interesting, Junior, because sometimes the vision is ahead of your confidence, and sometimes your confidence may be a little bit ahead of your your vision. You don't you you don't know where you're going, and so it's they aren't necessarily in the same place, but they do grow together. And the interplay between the two is fascinating. We have to understand that at an individual level, this is very true. It's also true at an organizational level we don't talk about confidence as much as capability but you have to be convinced that you have the capability to do something before you 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 will really set out to to do it and accomplish it so that relationship between vision and confidence is a is a very interesting relationship and we need to we need to focus on that we need to understand that better
1: last point here is sequence You must have a vision for yourself before you help others obtain visions for them. That piece of sequence is something that's important that we'll talk about a bit later. Next, what isn't vision? So if all of those things we talked about are vision, what isn't it? Visions are not dreams. And I think that this is the big point here. We're going to make some distinctions. Sometimes those things are used interchangeably and sometimes that's fine, but we'll provide a little bit more definition to help you understand what we think. Authors James Champy and Nitin Noria claim that most dreams are stillborn. That's what they say. That's true. We think that that is true. Most dreams are stillborn. Why? Because they're passive and idle thoughts and nothing more. They're just ideas. And as you say in the book, ideas are a dime a dozen. Saying we're all familiar with, but something that's appropriate in this context. You also say that being dreamy is being slack with no intention to act. So dreams and visions, what's the difference? You mentioned the wanting and willing ratio. And I was thinking about this as most, I guess people, people like us do in a two by two. And I was thinking about uh, wanting and willing on the axes. And what does high want, high willing create? That's what we would call big vision. And then there are other combinations too. One of them is high want, low vision. That's where big dreams lie. If there's low want, high vision, or high willing, that's not going to get us anywhere either. So there are interesting combinations. And what we aspire to do is have high willingness and also high want.
2: That's true, Junior. I think this is really fascinating, this relationship between wanting and willing, because people often make kind of drive by throwaway comments about well i'd like to do this or i'd like to do that but it's really an idle thought they're not willing to do it they're simply musing and there's this giant wanting to willing gap so that's a throwaway comment that's an that's a, that's an idle comment there's no intent behind that there's no determination behind that there's no commitment behind that and so and so that's why most dreams are still born going back to that to that statement this is where we really have to analyze ourselves if we have an aspiration okay great how much willingness do we have around that what's the ratio between wanting to do something and and being willing to do it it makes all the difference
1: in the world it makes a ton of difference and This is one of the reasons we have to be so careful about the words that come out of our mouths, because if we have a big wanting and willing gap and we talk a lot about wanting and there's low willingness, people pick up on that. They see the pattern and they'll eventually see those things coming out of your mouth as just hot air. So if you want people to take you seriously, it's very important that the willingness backs up. Uh, those aspirations. So let's talk about a survey that we did, 60 organizations. And the question was, do you want to be promoted? How many people do you think said yes? 50%. And then the follow-up question, are you willing to develop the skills and knowledge necessary to be promoted? 25%. So half. And that's just, that's just you saying that you're willing, right? And then if we took it further and actually watched people in their effort to do the things necessary to get promoted, it, it would be a lot less than 25%. But just in that, the self-response, we see half drop off from wanting to willing.
2: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, Junior. I, I, and people are, are, are willingly admitting this. There, this is a massive disconnect. It's dissonance within the person, but they readily admit. So then wanting is it's baseless, it's unfounded. It, the commitment's not behind it, but it just it just goes to show. I mean, it's a bit, it's a way to measure the difference between a real vision and then a dream. And we we were able to kind of nail that down. Uh, quantitatively in this survey with those two questions so that we could see the wanting willing gap. And it's a sizable gap. It's a huge
1: gap. And the fact that it's self-response is so interesting. People, it's almost unashamed. Like, yeah, I want to, but I'm not willing. Okay. Next one. Vision helps you survive. This is one that I like particularly because inevitably disaster strikes. And Eric Fromm said, he's a social psychologist, uncertainty is the very condition to impel man to unfold his powers. So when in history have we ever seen someone, quote, unquote, unfold their powers that hasn't been pressed, that hasn't been in a situation of great demand and great uncertainty. The greatest people have not been born from stability and ease. Those who we respect the most have been molded by uncertainty. Their response to it has been to grapple with it, to move forward, to create vision, and then walk in a direction. And so, this this vision helps pull us through when disaster does come when there is uncertainty and you mentioned that uncertainty it's not uncertainty in and of itself in a vacuum that there's nothing inherently positive but it's that uncertainty paired with the vision that can pull us forward and create some mobilization
2: it's also interesting junior that if you're in if you're in a situation of ease and comfort and assurance and prosperity Those conditions often don't impel you to even create a vision in the first place. Uh, They kind of relax you and disarm you and uh, lull you into a state of assurance. And they kind of move you into a mode of consumption versus contribution. So you're not really thinking about vision so much. So it can be quite dangerous. The conditions can be dangerous.
1: Well, it makes me think about the aura of comfort that surrounds a lot of what we do and at some point perhaps the the environment won't dictate or produce the uncertainty necessary to motivate us to create the vision and that needs to be done inside ourselves. And so there's almost you got to be careful with this and it's it's a, certainly a balancing act but almost an artificial dissatisfaction with the current state. I don't know if artificial is the right way to put that, but at some point we need to grab hold of a portrait of the future that's different than what today is, even if today's pretty good, because we cannot stay in that state in in just stasis and expect great things to happen.
2: Yeah, it's very true. For some reason, equilibrium is not our friend usually, (laughs) even though that's what we seem to want and seem to be seeking.
1: But uh, once we get there, It's not where we want to stay. So the last piece we want to touch on regarding vision and what it is and how it works is its relationship to creativity. Now, this is a really interesting vein that I had not considered. And so as we've been preparing for this episode, I've been thinking a lot about this. Vision precedes creativity. This is something that you seem to have a pretty good handle on, Tim, that I hadn't considered. So vision gives a goal. But then how do we make this connection to creativity? Here's here's how I'm seeing this. And let me know if I'm seeing this the way that you do. Vision gives a goal, which then begets a question. How do I get to the goal? So if that's the jumping off point is the question. We've created distance between where we are and where we want to get. And it's the question, the idea that starts to drive the creative process. Is that your line of thinking? No, that's exactly right. Uh, The vision begets
2: the question, always the same question, which is how do we get there? Which then puts that creative process into motion. And so we begin that creative process to create a conception of the future to define the goal. And then once we have that, we have to figure out how how we're going to get there. But isn't it interesting that vision, having a vision catalyzes this whole process, produces this question of then how do we get there? So it's, it's powerful when
1: you think about it. It's incredibly powerful. The way that I look at this is often, when I think about vision, I think about execution, where, okay, there's this point in the future, now what do we need to do to get there? We need to do A, B, and C, and we just execute on those things. I often ignore the creativity that's inherent in that process. And so a lot of people may not see themselves as creatives. I might not describe myself as a creative. But I think my domain of creativity is just different. And many people's domains of creativity are different. It's not, you know, pen and paper or brush and canvas. But it might be, I mean, inside the business world, it, I think there's a lot of creativity that passes as just execution when in reality, it's, there's a lot of creativity going on. So Steve Jobs said this creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. It seemed obvious to them after a while. That's because they were able to connect experiences they've had and synthesize new things. I love that. You might feel a little guilty because you didn't really do it. You just saw something and you connected it, but isn't that what always happens? Is there a thing anything that's truly from nothing? That statement by
2: Jobs makes it seem too easy, right? He, when he says it's just connecting things, oh, it's just so no problem, it's easy, go do it. It's actually a lot harder than he makes it appear. I, it makes me think of a statement, Junior, uh, from another Steve, Steve Martin, the 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 comedian. He said that he, he's talking about his own craft and trying to teach it to others. And he said, you've gotta be an idea machine. That's your job. And so you're constantly generating ideas. You need to be capturing those. You don't know what they're worth. You don't know where they're gonna go, but you're incubating. You're in this stage of incubation all the time. And you need to think of yourself as an idea machine and you need to work on that, right? It's your craft. And then who knows where that may lead, but this is your default position. You're, you're always working on that.
1: The idea of ideation creativity being mechanical resonates with me, maybe just because that's how my brain works. But I think about you know another comedian, Jerry Seinfeld, I think I mean, his mantra was a joke a day. And if I remember correctly, there was a period of many, many years where regardless of what was going on, it was a joke a day. And, you know, probably 99% of those were not earth shattering. (laughs) They probably weren't the funniest things, right? I would love to see some of those jokes. And you would probably think this came from Jerry Seinfeld. Like, I'm not terribly impressed. But across enough volume and enough connections, you'll probably find it. Here's the last point regarding creativity. This is the point that I love the very most in preparation for this, creativity and independence. So every year, the MacArthur Genius Grant Fellowships are awarded annually to, quote, talented individuals who have shown extraordinary originality and dedication in their creative pursuits and a marked capacity for self-direction, end quote that's who they're identifying and giving the genius grants to. It's the official statement. So this shows the relationship between vision and originality. There's an element. So at the end, they say a market capacity for self-direction. That's fascinating to me. That's one of the criteria. So if this is for genius grants, like what, what does self-direction have to do with Uh, being awarded a genius grant. Why, why do they have that as a qualifier at the end? Why is that a criteria? Well,
2: I think because they're trying they're they are doing something that has not been done before. They are pursuing a vein of research. They're pursuing some, uh, creative outlet. They're doing original work. You can't do original work if you are following others or complying with what's been done or following convention or following tradition you've got to break from the pack somewhere you you've got to do something different you've got to create distinction in your work so that implies self-direction it implies independence at some point point. and so now we have we have this relationship between vision and independence there's a positive correlation between those two variables that we can't ignore. It's, it's there, right? If, if we're not willing to challenge the status quo in the creative process, then we don't produce anything that's new or original ever. And, and so th- this, this relationship is something that we need to think
1: more deeply about and reflect on personally. I chewed on this for a long time and I asked myself, why can't they just put talented individuals who have shown extraordinary originality and dedication in their creative pursuits, period? Why? why that seems pretty reasonable. But then this qualifier and a marked capacity for self-direction, that's amazing to me. And it means that that's important for some reason, there's some implications. What? What are they? It means that we should cultivate independence before we cultivate creativity because one is an enabling condition of the other. Independence spawns vision. So, if we roll this all the way back to vision, this is, this is important. Independence spawns vision, creative thought, and action. So, people are independent before they are creative, not the other way around.
2: So, think about what this means, Junior, if you're a leader and you're trying to help others with their vision, you've got to help them become independent before they are creative as well. So if you're a leader, you need to enable that independence little by little. Remember, you're trying to help others unfold their powers. Often the people you work with have no idea what they're capable of, but they need help. You don't want to over delegate or overstretch, but you need them to go on a journey of self discovery and give them degrees of independence along the way. They need some help in that process. They're not going to be able to do it all by themselves. So with some guidance, some may some may need just a little bit of guidance, some may need a little bit more, but often with that guidance they will be able to gain independence and then be able to use that independence in creating a vision and in increasing their own capacity for self-direction, going back to the criteria for a MacArthur Genius Grant, right? So we can do that with others.
1: It's a huge light bulb for me. And here's how I'm thinking about it. What do organizations want? Organizations want competitive advantage. How do you get competitive advantage? Through innovation. How do you get innovation? Through ideas and deviations from the status quo, through creativity. If independence precedes creativity, then if you want competitive advantage, you need to enable independence in your people. I don't see how you can get around that logic. And that's the light bulb for me. That's the train of thinking. If all of those things are true, then what are we doing by creating people who are dependent? Oof, we're working against the very thing that we're trying to create unless our ends are self-absorbed. And so, if you truly want to be an effective leader, then one of the first things that you need to think about is how to enable the independence of your people in an appropriate way, with an appropriate amount of autonomy. We say in contributor safety, autonomy with guidance in exchange for results. So, you see how these, these topics interweave, how they're dependent on each other and how it all works together to become an effective leader. So, that for me was a light bulb uh, as I've been thinking about this even while we're talking. So, you can see, Junior,
2: that now, now we start to bring in the concept of, of micromanaging and you can see how the micromanager squelches and quashes a vision at the individual level because that, that micromanager is getting in the way, not enabling independence.
1: So, the, these, these things start to fit together now. Dependence and creativity then are mutually exclusive, which means that anything you do to breed dependence is quelling the creativity, as you say. Okay, so vision, it's hard to do. So what do we do? How do we create vision and how do we help others create their vision? Point one, we're going to go through several steps, is just to create a vision. It needs to exist. And where can it come from? We have an idea for you as a place to start. There are many places that you could start. We think this one is unique enough to call out as something to think about. That vision can come from identity, and this is this is an interesting vein uh, that you go through in the book. You talk about the fact that it could be intergenerational identity as a product of your family's heritage. I've seen this enough with enough people having read and studied enough in terms of biographies, autobiographies that I cannot ignore this point. It comes up too much for me to say, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't include it in the episode. I think that it's worth it. So why do you think that this is a part of vision, this intergenerational identity? Well, Junior, this is a bit of a counterintuitive
2: point that a person can gain vision by digging into their past. That's ironic, isn't it? It's it's ironic. I'm gonna go back in order to gain more of a vision for the future, but it's actually true. So understanding more about your family and where you come from can give you more of a vision for your life and your future. So, so let's dig into this a little bit. This is something that a lot of people don't put together
1: but this may be helpful to listeners. So here are some stats that I pulled that I I thought were pretty interesting. This is something that, I don't know, there are some undercurrents in society uh, that also tell me that this is interesting to people. The National Genealogical Society said that the number of people doing genealogy in the United States has increased by 40% since the year 2000. A lot of this is technology enabled, so I get that. But here are some other stats in 2022 there were an estimated 30 million people in the united states who were actively engaged in genealogy research 30 million that's almost 10 percent that's a lot that's like eight percent of the population actively engaged in genealogy well, like that's a big number and then there's this idea too that's being borne out this hypothesis that people are actually interested in where they come from And here's a stat to back that up. The number of people taking DNA tests for genealogy purposes has increased dramatically. So 2012, there were an estimated 1 million people who had taken a DNA test for genealogy purposes. By last year, 26 million. You had 26 million people that are doing DNA tests just to look at their genealogy. Why would you do that? Unless you thought it was interesting. Why would 26 million people do that unless they wanted to know where they came from for some reason? And so we have this fascination, it seems, as a species, with where we come where we came from, who preceded us, who were they, where were they? When were they? And what did they do?
2: I read a I read a statistic the other day that said family history research genealogy has become the second most popular hobby next to gardening isn't that amazing okay so what's driving this
1: that's interesting i won't i won't dive into that but that that's really interesting i had not heard that gardening and ancestry there you go so people in your past why why are we talking about this why does it seem like a tangent because if we go back and look at those who preceded us there are some things that we can learn that can help shape our identity what we think about ourselves and our vision of the future there are some motivational stories if you look back you'll probably find some some misfits and maybe some train robbers and we'll ignore them but there are probably some people in there <laughs> that uh, did some pretty interesting things tim you've got a story about wallace christofferson you want to tell us a little bit about him?
2: Well, this is just an example of how a person gains a sense of their intergenerational self and how this can give you a vision for your own life. And really, what are you doing? As, as you're looking back to your ancestors and trying to understand who they are and what they did, What what are you focusing on? You're focusing on their character and you're focusing on the way that they overcame hardship and adversity. That's that's what most people are interested in. So this happened for me in the case of 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 my my grandfather, Wallace Christofferson, and I found some of the things from his life have inspired me. So so I'll just tell you a little bit about his story. So he was orphaned at age, I believe it was six. He was the youngest of nine children. So here he is, he's an orphan. He, he was passed around the extended family to live with his brothers and sisters but th- they were all poor it he never stayed anywhere for a long period of time. He didn't really have anyone to take care of him. He never fe- felt a sense of belonging he really didn't have a home. so at age 15 he lied about his age and he said he was 18 and he joined the US Army during World War one. So he goes into the army at age 15. After the war, he took up boxing and he became a heavyweight boxer. And he actually had a match with uh, the world heavyweight champion at the time, Jack Dempsey. And he didn't fare too well, but he did say that he was proud of the scar that Jack Dempsey gave him over his eye. And he, would, he actually showed me that when I was a child before he, before he died. He married my grandmother during the depths of the Great Depression. He would search for work wherever he could find it, sleeping on park benches, moving from town to town. He'd do anything he could to earn money back then because it was so scarce. They lost their first two babies at birth due to a lack of proper nourishment. So they had two stillborn sons in a row. In the end, he overcame the, the perils and the setbacks of his life, and he became a dedicated family man, a loyal friend, and a, and a servant, really, to all. Well, how do you think that makes me feel? <laughs> to me, he became a leader in the true sense of the word. He tasted the bitter without becoming bitter. That, his life, gives me vision and actually changes the vision of who I am because now I have this sense of, of an intergenerational self that gives me strength and determination. Isn't that interesting how that works? So I've, I'm experiencing this firsthand through him. So there's this, there's a power that comes to you in knowing about your ancestors, when they showed character, when they overcame adversity, and it infuses you with vision and determination for your own
1: life. that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. For whatever reason, the motivation that comes from those types of stories, is almost visceral when you know that they are your ancestry specifically. And so I would encourage each of us to go back and try and find stories like that in your line. Because, again, I don't know what it is, but there is something about that that gives strength and determination. Someone like you, that came before you, that shares blood with you, did these things. That's amazing. How do you do that justice? How do you let that vision be impacted by those that came before you? So we wanted to spend some time on that. So create a vision, and that vision can come from the identity you have and those that came before you. Two is create a galactic vision, not a small one. At the very beginning, David Burnham said, make no little plans, right? Make big plans, aim high and hope and work. That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about galactic plans. Steve Jobs says, don't be trapped by dogma. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. It might sound trite, but I think that this is true. Don't be trapped by dogma. We need to break free from that, look above that, and have a galactic-sized vision. What do you think about that one? Well, I think it's true.
2: and We also have to remember, Junior, that we're also surrounded by people who want to hold us back. They themselves don't have a vision. They don't have maybe aspiration in their lives. And so they want you to keep company with them. They're like a lobster and they wanna keep you in the bucket. And so as you're trying to pursue your vision, sometimes others are not happy about it. They're resentful and they wanna hold you back. And we have to be careful about that too. Some some people around us will help us with our vision. Some people will get in the way. That's not where we wanna spend our time. So we, I think we need to remember that.
1: I saw the other day, there was, a, I won't say that it's a quote because I'll mess it up, but it was this idea that most people want you to be the version of yourself that best serves them. And that's true, I think, speaking in generalities. And so what does that mean? it means that people will apply pressure to you so that you stay the version of yourself that's best for them. So next, after creating a galactic vision, what do we need to do? We need to simplify it and earn clarity. There are a lot of visions out there that are probably more organizational than personal that are very complicated that are very confusing 80% of employees cannot accurately describe their organization's vision so what does that tell us about vision creation it tells us that most people aren't very good at it and it tells us that why aren't they good at it because they complicate it they make it confusing they make it high volume they make it you know general so no one's going to remember There's a quote from Townsend in here. Tim, you wanna read that one?
2: Yeah, this is Robert C. Townsend, who was a a business person and CEO years ago. He said, men and women are complicating animals. They only simplify under pressure. Now, this this is a statement. This is a valuable insight that needs to settle you got to ponder this men and women are complicating animals they only simplify under pressure for example take a look at organizations what do organizations do if they're left to their their own devices they 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 proliferate they add complexity they don't naturally simplify and we have to be on the lookout for that we have to be Aware that that's the tendency, and we have to work against that, right? So another way to say it is that a good vision is a masterpiece of compression. Well, what does this mean? This means that a compelling, powerful vision is simple. It's lean. It's penetrating, because we know that complexity works against a vision. It robs it of its power, and So whether it's at an individual level, at an organizational level, what are you trying to create? You're trying to create a masterpiece of compression. Only only when you get to that point, does it really become a life-giving force because you need the clarity uh, that comes from that and and the power that comes from that. That's when it really starts to tap motivation and propel people forward. The
1: next piece is communicate your vision. And I'm going to off the cuff, change this and say that it's write your vision, not just communicate it. So this whole time we've been talking about your vision, your vision, your vision. Okay. Well, is this just an idea that you keep in your head? Is it just some amorphous, really foggy thing that you move toward? No, no. It needs to be specific. Write it down. There's a quote from Edward Murrow in a 1954 CBS broadcast about Churchill. He said, Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Why? Why why would we share this? Because words are powerful. Writing is powerful and it forces a few things. Ambrose Pierce said this, there's a good deal of popular ignorance about writing. It is commonly thought that good writing comes of a natural gift and that without the gift, the trick cannot be learned. That is true of great writing, but not of good. Anyone of good natural intelligence and a fair education can be taught to write well, as well as he can be taught to draw well or play billiards well or shoot a rifle well and so forth. To do any of these things greatly is another matter. If one cannot do great work, it is worthwhile to do good work and think it great. The reason that I thought that this was appropriate to put in was because writing is powerful. And I'm learning this over time It's not enough to keep something in your head. It's not enough to just even jot down a couple notes. It is imperative that you write down your vision because it will help with all the other things we've talked about. It will help with clarity. It will help with simplicity. It it will help with compression. English professor Joseph Williams said, clear, straight, and plain spoken. It's really difficult to, to just say something that comes off your tongue, clear, straight, and plain spoken. Just thinking about it. (laughs) You need a little editing. Yeah, you need some editing. You need some revisions. How many times do you think you would edit that vision statement? Hopefully dozens and dozens and dozens. And maybe it will change over time. Maybe the stage of life, the season will change. And so maybe that's something that you can keep and something that's a living document that you can work on. And for some people, this may be very straightforward. You may be thinking, yeah, of course, I'm going to write it down. You have to realize for some, perhaps for most, that does not come easily. It's not something that people think to do. It's yet imperative, in my opinion.
2: I agree, Junior. So no first draft visions, no second draft visions. Keep on going, keep on going, keep refining, keep iterating. Uh, That's just the process. And, and the compression comes out of that. The clarity comes out of that.
1: So after you've done that, you've written your vision, you need to embody your vision. And this loops back to the beginning when we're talking about the wanting and willing ratio. And we need to remember that visions are not dreams. Vision requires work. And so when we have written that vision, we then go practice we then go work to embody that vision to the best of our ability. The next thing that will happen is that in adversity will come. You're gonna be on your merry way, trying to embody your vision, and there will be a storm that comes to knock you off track to get you to stop moving forward and embodying that vision to either stand still or to retreat. And that's not what we wanna do. That's why that vision becomes so important because when those winds come that are against you, you can walk towards them in pursuit of the vision. If that vision isn't that North star that you're working towards, it becomes much more difficult to keep going in the same direction and be persistent and be consistent. You're gonna to start to wander, stand still, or move backwards, all of which we don't want.
2: Yeah, it's very true.
1: Um, I just wanna make one last
2: comment about vision at the organizational level. And I want to talk about vision and how it relates to alignment, because this is just so critical. You can't align a large, complex organization without a clear vision. It's not possible. And when I say align, what do I mean? I mean, two things. Number one, that we have shared understanding. And number two, that we have shared commitment. That's what alignment means. It means that we have shared understanding and we have shared commitment. You can't have that alignment without a unifying vision. But again, the vision needs to be a compression, a masterpiece of compression, otherwise it can't do its job. If it does its job, not only can it align people initially, but it can keep people aligned. And how does it do that? It, it keeps them aligned throughout the execution process. How does it do that? It, do, it does that because it becomes the reference. It becomes what we look to to figure out what we should do or what, what we should not do. So there are economics that are attached to vision. If you've got a good, compelling, clear vision then that vision, as a reference, lowers the unit costs of making decisions. Let me say that again. It it lowers the unit costs of making decisions. And so it creates economies of scale for decision-making that allows the organization to maintain alignment over time. How else can you do it? You've got to have a unifying vision that allows people to maintain that shared understanding and shared commitment and then helps them make decisions. So I I just wanted to add that piece because at the organizational level, it's absolutely crucial. It performs an enormous amount of work to create and maintain alignment
1: in the organization. So you can look at creating and maintaining that vision as a real investment. What you said about lowering the unit cost of decision making is absolute gold. So I hope everyone is paying attention. Very very relevant. Okay, so to summarize, we talked about vision today. Visions both motivating and sustaining. Visions are not dreams. Dreams are things we want. Visions are things we're willing to work for. Once you have a vision for yourself, your life, your organization, help others get theirs. If you do not have a vision, go and get one. That's the first thing you need to do is create a vision. Then we make sure that it's a galactic vision. Then we simplify it. Then we write it down. Then we embody it. And then we endure adversity as we pursue it. So we hope that you found today's conversation valuable. There were certainly some light bulb moments for me. We appreciate you, your time, your attention, your listenership, and we very much appreciated doing this series on leading with character and competence. And our challenge to you and to ourselves is to embody both of those and all of their cornerstones to be high character and high competence. If you've missed any of the episodes, you're welcome to go back. If you want to double click on one, you're welcome to repeat, and we will start up a few more episodes. I'm not sure if those short form have launched yet, but if they have, we would encourage you to go try one of those out. They're 10 minute single point lessons. If you found value in today's episode, we'd encourage you to share that with someone who might find it useful. And with that, we'll ask you to tune in next time. See you then. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, Culture by Design listeners, this is the end of today's episode. You can find all the important links from today's episode at leaderfactor.com forward slash podcast. And if you found today's episode helpful and useful in any way, please share with a friend and leave a review. If you'd like to learn more about Leader Factor and what we do, then please visit us at leaderfactor.com. Lastly, if you'd like to give any feedback to the Culture by Design podcast or even request a topic from Tim and Jr., then reach out to us at info at leaderfactor.com or find and tag us on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening and making culture something you do by design, not by default.